I hope to God they're never used, but maybe they might be someday they will save lives. And there's not a lot of public art that saves lives. Soon, the podcast produced by Creative Manilas. I'm Barbara St. Clair, your host, and I'm here with Douglas Kornfeld, who is a public artist. And for those people who might be listening in the Pinellas County area or the Tampa Bay area, you might be very familiar with one of his works, which is called Fish the Jury. It's nicknamed the Red Chairs, and it's located in front of the county courthouse in St. Petersburg. Let's just jump right in with the red chairs because there's a wonderful story. Yes, the the piece was inspired by me actually sitting on a jury for 13 days. I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I enjoyed it. It was very captivating. It was very interesting. And during the trial, you're not allowed to talk with anyone about the proceedings. So I would go home at night and I was married at the time. I had to bite my tongue. I couldn't say anything. And so when the trial finally ended, I was just gushing about how wonderful of an experience sitting on a jury is and how meaningful it is and how interesting it was. And I went on and on and on and on and on. And my wife got sick of listening to me and she finally said, look, you know, enough, go do some art about it. And two years later, I was named a finalist for a project here in St. Petersburg at the Judicial Center. I came up with this piece, and it's 12 monumental-sized chairs. Each one is unique, and each one is inspired by a person who I sat on the jury with. When I was designing them, I literally tried to close my eyes and, and bring myself back to the jury room where we sat and deliberated and argued and made friends and made enemies and so forth over the two days of deliberation. And so each chair has a distinct personality inspired by the jury that I sat with. So what kind of trial was it? It was very complicated. It was a gentleman was in charge of a parking garage that had a lot of money at the end of the evening and he was hurt in a robbery and he sued because the guards left every night at 10 o'clock and they didn't lock up and count the receipts till 10.30. He was severely hurt and suffered brain damage and so forth. Sued the city who contracted the guards. City didn't want to pay. I thought it was all cut and dried. But there was four or five people who said, no, he doesn't deserve any money. Hmm. Including, I'm so sad to say, the, the woman that I made friends with, she was the sweetest person. She brought cookies every day. I considered her my buddy. And one of my favorite chairs in the installation is designed with her in mind. And she just wouldn't come around. And it took us two days to finally get a majority. So um, that was my experience. And it was it was wonderful in a weird way. So how did you translate a personality or the way somebody looked or whatever it was that you used to trigger it? How did you translate that into these metal objects? And each chair looks very different. Well, for example, this woman, she was very proper, dressed very nice. You know, people would come in just slovenly dressed. And she was always in a suit and her hair was made up and she brought homemade cookies every day. So I thought of her as sitting in front of a vanity in the morning, in front of a big mirror, sort of making herself pretty. And so that chair came out of that. There was a guy, never said two words, the whole deliberation, he just sat off to the side and he became like the most generic of the chairs. And I put him in the very back of the installation. Mm. 
there was a very large man who was really a great guy, very funny and always saying nice things and funny things. And so I made a very large sort of squat, massive structure that would support him, almost like a sumo wrestler. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. what I thought of in my mind when I was designing it. Which chair is you? Um, the Doug chair, yes. It's sort of like a, a chair similar to what uh, a Breuer, who's a German architect, designed. If you face the installation, it's on the extreme right closest to the street. And I think there's a picture of me sitting on it on my website. All right. So, and why is that you? I don't know. I, I, at the time, it seemed right. I did this piece in 2006, I believe. I'm just so thrilled that it's been so well-received by the city. I mean, I just keep hearing over and over again from people who... People do like it. And interact with it and... Kind of has a little bit of a playground feel to it, you know? That was climb very, on it. very intentional. Each chair sits on its own mound of grass. When I arrived at the site, it was flat, dead flat. And so I, I put a mound for each chair, and that was kind of symbolic that every juror was autonomous and had their own mm. vote mm. and their own personality. Oh. You know, and each mound is slightly different shape and size, and as each person was a different shape and size. But one thing they all had was that they all have an unobstructed view of a very generic chair that sits on the corner of the site that's the only chair that's normal size. The juror chairs are all very large, and I call them monumental, but the defendant chair is on the corner of the site, and if you sit there, you have an unobstructed view of all the juror chairs, which the defendant did have, an unobstructed view of all of us. Wow. So it, it's, it was me trying to describe the American judicial system without being too didactic and playful, of course. I, I love that. And I wanted people to climb on them. Mm -hmm. I wanted people to play with them. And people came out of the woodwork just as soon as we were installing them and climbed on them and put their kids on them and so forth. That's one of the things that I think is when public art is really doing the work that public art can do, that you have the freedom to touch it and be with it. You know, I, I've gotten my hands slapped literally <laughs> more than once in a museum or oh, yes. environment. You know, uh, you're not supposed to touch things, even in cases where sometimes the artist wanted you to. Yes. But, the you know the museum proctors are not not necessarily on board so i think it's a real freedom for people and, a, and it can be great pleasure to you know to hug the art or climb on the art or well yeah handstands on the art or whatever it is you want to and also the public has paid for this they own it I mean, it's their tax money that has paid the bill for this. And when you do public art, you know, what the first question they ask you, you know, when they're trying to decide who to pick for the project, what about will it stand up to, you know, the public? You know, can it be damaged? You know, do we have to maintain it? And you have to make things very robust and very strong. I use steel. I want to encourage people to touch it and to interact with it. And they do. And uh, I, I take great pleasure from that. It's, it's different from a museum. I would never touch a work of art in a museum. I mean, but public art is, is a different animal. So how did you become a public artist? 
Or why? <laughs> Maybe the better question is I don't know if I can answer. Why either. did you become a public I am still asking that question to myself. It wasn't deliberate and it wasn't premeditated. It was circumstances. I was originally, long time ago, in college, I was trained as a landscape architect. And I practiced that for a few years out of school and I enjoyed it very much. It was a great job. Back then, back in the olden days, before there were computers, uh, you had to draw your designs with pencil on paper. Uh, there was no screen to render it for you. And I wanted to improve my drawing, so I went to night classes to mm -hmm. just take life drawing and add to my skills as a draftsman. And I was incredibly fortunate to have a teacher who changed my life. Mm. I went to him saying, just teach me how to draw a person, you know. And he went, no, we don't do that. Uh, let me teach you about art. And I said, oh, I don't want to do art. I just want to draw a person. And he, you know, was very patient and st stuck with me and got me to think about things as an artist. Mm -hmm. And three years later, I quit my job. And I started drawing and painting full-time and going to school full-time at the museum school in Boston. And then I painted for many, many years, uh, not very successfully. I was never a great painter. I went to grad school and made paintings in grad school, but those were the last paintings I made. And I got involved using a computer. The Apple computer had just come out. And I started fooling around with that. And I started designing images using the computer and putting these images into space, you know, using a brand new software back then, which was called Photoshop, mm. which was literally brand new. I know. It was like earth shaking. It was amazing. It was magic. And I used that and I started putting my images into real space. I would go to a place, I would take a picture of it. And then I would make an image in Photoshop or using various software, and then I would collage it into the space so it looked real. In fact, back then, people didn't know Photoshop. So they go, oh, wow, you did that? That's amazing. And I go, oh, no, no, this is a computer rendering. Right, right. But back then, you, people just didn't know. Right. Now you can't fool people like that. So I started doing that. And then one curator saw something I did and said, why don't you apply for this sculpture exhibition? It's, it's not very much. It's, you get like four or $500 to do a piece. And I said, well, I'm not really a sculptor, and I don't really want to do it. And he goes, listen, I'm the juror. You'll get in. <laughs> and I, I went, oh, okay. So I, I took the money, and I did a piece, and I installed it. And it wasn't anything that made anybody that impressed, but it was the first piece I did. And the curator liked it. And then I did more. I, I kept taking pictures of places and then putting my images into these places using Photoshop and showing them around. And, and then the same curator said, oh, you should apply for this project down in Providence. They give you $2,000 to do a piece. Back then, that was, wow, that's a lot of dough. I'll, I'll do it. And I mocked it up using Photoshop and so forth. And then I sent that as my application. And at the very end, I, you had to submit a budget. And I had like $100 left over in the budget. And I wrote, burgers and beer for my crew, you know, who's going to help me put it up. And all my friends go, oh, don't put that in there. They won't take that. They'll, they won't like that. And I said, well, if he doesn't have a sense of humor about this, then I don't even want to do it. 
turned out that was one of the deciding factors that oh, wow. made the guy who ran that competition like me and gave me the commission. And that was a big piece, and I did it. And so then I started having slides. Or I, back then there was no digital images. I took pictures of my projects, and I would apply for other things. So I had, I had things for my portfolio besides the digital renderings that weren't real projects. And I just kept applying and applying and applying, and eventually I got a permanent project. Took a lot of rejections. Mm -hmm. I still get a lot of rejections, but I sort of stumbled into something that I, I literally never expected to do and didn't even know about. I, if you had told me about public art back then, I, what's that, you know? I don't even know about it. Well, I think most people would have answered, you know, a guy on a horse on a plinth. Yes, yes. Back then. Yes. And, you know, I had to apologize for the things I did back then because people thought of public art as a horse with George Washington sitting on it. Right. And I would go, no, that's, yeah. that's not yeah. what I'm interested in. And they go, well, what do you do? And, and I would explain it and... And I remember one woman looked at my images and she said, oh, use a computer for this, right? And I go, yeah. She goes, oh, I don't like computer art. And I went, oh, what do you do? She goes, oh, I, I'm a writer. And I go, oh, I don't like typewriter art. <laughs> and she stopped cold. Uh. And she said, well, the typewriter doesn't write my stories. I said, well, the computer doesn't make my images. Yeah. And that was a big moment for me and for her. I don't think if I was starting out now that I would, I don't know if I would even be able to break into it now. There's so much more competition. There's, oh my goodness, it's, it's very hard to get a commission these days. I apply for somewhere between 50 and 100 projects every year. Mm-hmm. And in a good year, I am made finalist for maybe two or three projects, if I'm lucky, if it's a good year. And if it's a very good year, I am selected to build one of them. What? So I, I get 1%, and I'm, I, I'm pretty proud of that 1%. It's, it's challenging. Mm -hmm. It's very challenging, but very rewarding. I mean, my chairs, for example, here in St. Pete, more people will see that piece than anybody who goes to a museum. Sure. I mean, thousands drive by it every day, whether they look at it or know about it, but they see it. And that's an incredible influence you have over the public. You have a huge audience. You have a huge opportunity to communicate with people who may never, ever go into a museum. You know, a lot of public art is selected to decorate. I uh, choose not to do that. For me, public art is a message in a bottle. What does that mean? It means we, we do it and we sort of throw it out there into the world and it will be here long after I'm gone. Long after I'm gone. Uh, it's made out of steel. If it's even reasonably protected, it might be here in a hundred years. So what are these people in a hundred years going to think? They're going to think, well, what did they think was important 100 years ago when they gave mm. their treasure to an artist to make a piece of art? Mm -hmm. For me, I want people to think about what we were doing with ourselves and our ideas, what we thought was important. 
something as you were talking about going to your drawing class that I really wanted to come back to because I thought it was so interesting. You told this teacher, I just want you to teach me how to draw a person or a thing or whatever. Mm. And he said, no, I want to teach you how to think about things as an artist. What does it mean to think about things as an artist? Mm. That's, that's the ultimate question. Yeah. Artists are magicians. We really are. Think about it. When, when I used to do a drawing or a painting and I would hang it up and maybe in a gallery try and sell it. Didn't sell too much stuff. But the first thing somebody would say, will you sign it? And I, oh, of course, you know, I'll sign it. And, and you think, well, why do I need to sign it? It's like, it's like the laying on of your hand. Touching that piece made it authentic. Mm-hmm. Without that signature, it just wasn't real. But by touching it, I transformed it from a piece of canvas or a piece of paper with some scratchy marks on it or some paint on it into an object that someone treasured and was willing to fork over real money for. But you have to give them something more than just a piece of canvas or a piece of paper with scratch marks on it. What do you put on that piece of paper? You try and show them something that causes them to think differently. I I taught figure drawing for many, many, many years. And I tried to teach like my teacher Bill taught me. I would always stand up and say, we're not here to make pictures of naked people. That's what the internet is for. What we're here to do is look at things and show them in a new way and and get people to think differently when they look at it. When you show somebody something that they already know, that that doesn't change them. So Bill taught us to to look at a, a figure, a man or a woman or an object or whatever we were drawing and change it, mm-hmm. make it ours. Make it, what do we see? What do I see as an artist that's different than the what you see? I had another teacher, he said, the role of the artist is to manipulate the viewer and manipulate in a good way, not in a bad way, but to get them to think differently, to get them to see your way, your vision, your way of doing something. And if you're successful, they, they see things differently after that. You know, they, they walk around and go, oh, I saw a painting of something and it looks so different than the real thing. And why? And, and what, what am I seeing new? An artist looks at the world and processes it and spits it out in some way, in sculpture, in drawing, in painting, in film, in dance in music in a way that's different and we we take it as an audience and hopefully get ideas from it and sometimes we're just entertained sometimes we're amused sometimes we're upset you do a painting or a drawing or an image i'm a visual artist and people think oh that's that's depressing and i go well but how many emotions do you have is everything joyful and pretty If you love someone dearly, uh, is that the only way you can see them? What about when they do something to hurt you or when they pass away or something? Don't you feel sad? There's a myriad of emotions and ideas that come to you about things. And I think the artists, it's their job to show you those possibilities and get you to think about is quite different than much of your other work. It's very specific to that site and to that building and to how I was thinking at that time. 
a lot of what I'm doing now are figures, mm -hmm. but not figures in a realistic sense. Right. They're, they're very angular, they're semi-abstracted, they're made of steel tube, they're not round and soft and cuddly. But I try to put them in poses or in ways that are iconic. In Memphis, the figures are dancing, or mm -hmm. they are inspired by dancing. And they're very joyful, and they're very playful, and they're fun. And uh, they're not super serious, but they're to make you feel like movement and that people move. And what was interesting is I, I was presenting these to the jury in Memphis. I had the computer renderings, of course. And somebody said, oh, they're juking. And I, I went, what is that? Well, I, I didn't say that, but in my mind, I went, mm, what does that mean? It turns out that in Memphis, hip-hop dance, there's a style of hip-hop dance that is called Jukin, J-U-K-I-N. Mm -hmm. Like jukebox? I don't know what the origin of the word, but this is what they said. They said they're, they're Jukin. And I went, oh, yes, yes, of course. <laughs> and uh, they go, they loved it. They, uh, so I have four figures that are various sort of hip-hop or dance positions, two and two in two different spots. They're sort of dancing with each other or next to each other. And they communicate jukin to the locals. They would communicate just dance to the rest of us civilians who might wander by who are not from Memphis. But they're, they're playful. I mean, I, I never get tired of this idea that I come up with an idea and somebody pays me to do that and then they pay for it and they give me thousands of dollars. I don't get to keep that much of it. I, most of it goes into the materials and the fabrication and the contractors and so forth, but I get a little at the end. But what's most important is I get my vision built in the world. I don't have children. These are what will remain of me when I'm gone. Oh, and I, cool. yeah. I'm thrilled and honored and excited and delighted. And that's the reward. It takes forever. It's very involved, but it's and worth it. I certainly didn't realize for the longest time that a lot of people doing public art create the design and then work with in, in sort of in collaboration with structural engineer mm. and fabricators and contractors to pour cement and that many public artists come up with a design and the idea and then they almost become project managers for it. That's the word. That's the word. I, I, it's funny. I, I, you know, I have pictures of all my projects on my phone and be at a bar or at a party or, you know, whatever, meet somebody, you know, a friend or whatever, and they say, what do you do? And I go, oh, I'm an artist. And they say, oh, can you, do you have pictures? And I show it to them. And they go, oh, my goodness, you must have a studio that's just gigantic. You know, I build things. I did something at San Antonio that's 35 feet tall. And I go, no, no, you don't understand. I, I don't build these. I don't have the machinery or the factory wherewithal to do it. I look at myself as I conceptualize it, I design it, very much like an architect. The architect doesn't build the building. They're not out there with their hammer putting the nails in or pouring the concrete. They design the building and then what do they do? They hire engineers to help make sure it doesn't fall down. And then they hire people to assemble the materials and they hire people to install it. and. 
and so forth. And, and I am a project manager, marshalling, you know, the various people I need to make it happen. It's quite a endeavor to do it with the money you have and then please your boss, which is a city or a public arts administrator or a community, make sure they're on board and then do it on budget. And with public art, if you go over budget, they don't give you more money. You have to do it on the budget that they give you. So uh, I wear many hats and I use a lot of help in everything. And do you have a team that you work with most of the time? Or? I have a, I've worked with the same structural engineer for many of my projects. I have a fabricator that I have used for a number of projects that I'm very happy with. But when I go to a city like Memphis, I have to hire a local contractor who, unless I've done a project in Memphis before, I've never worked with. So how do you find the right person? It's scary. Yeah. I lose a lot of sleep worrying about this. I, in this case, I went to the architect of the housing development. And I said, who, who built this? He said, oh, go see this guy, you know? And I, so I called him up and he like, what? Artists, sculpts, you know? And they don't, contractors are very fearful of working with me because they have no prior experience right. with something the same. You build a house, they built houses before. They know what houses are, they know what bathrooms are, they know what doors are. You show them a 14 foot high stainless steel dancer, they go, uh, yeah, oh, well, then when it's all done and they get it, then they love you because, you know, they, they have pictures of it up in their offices and the workmen take pictures and show it to their girlfriends and everybody is like, oh, yeah, this is so cool. But, you know, getting to that day when it's done yeah. is very challenging. And then a big truck will arrive with my sculptures on a pallet. We'll tear the plastic off the pallets and we will have a big crane that will then lift these up into the sky, which this is the exciting part. I mean, this is like what you live for, you know? And they lower them on and hopefully the anchor bolts are set just right so that they fit into the plates and then you bolt it on and you, you're done. And and you're like, oh my God, it's there, it's mine, I did that. And you look at it and you go, my God, you know, it really came out. And I, I'm always amazed. I mean, I know what it looks like. I know vividly, intimately what every detail is about. But when you see it in real life, bolted to the ground with people standing next to it, right? it is, I'm the luckiest guy on earth. I mean, it's my work, it's me up there for the next hundred years. Wow. So. I want to talk to you about New Orleans. Oh. Because you have a project there that seems to me to really be a wonderful example of public art and social good, and also it's got a business purpose, so to speak. It's a very unique project. The idea for it came about, we all remember Katrina, terrible tragedy. I think 3,000 people died in New Orleans because they couldn't get out of the city. They were stuck there. And when the waters receded, the city said, we're not letting this happen again like this. And a group of people got together that named themselves evacuateers. And it was just some kids. I mean, they were like 20 years old and they made signs, you know, had printed up these traffic signs, you know, like you see at a no parking sign put them in 17 locations in New Orleans saying, this is where you come if you need a ride out of town. 
when the mayor calls for mandatory evacuation. We will have buses here waiting for you. Well, these signs, nobody saw them. Their intentions were great. The whole thing was a great idea, but who knew what to do? So they wrote grants and they got enough money to have a competition for a sculpture that would be an icon that would be placed in 17 locations around New Orleans that would give you the idea that this is where you come to mm -hmm. get a ride. Mm -hmm. And my design was, well, we all take Ubers now, but once upon a time in the olden days, people, you stood on a sidewalk and you raised your hand to the air and you gestured and a cab would pull over. Right. It's a universal gesture. Right. Nobody taught us how to do it. They do it in Asia. They do it in Europe. They do it in Africa. They do it in South America. Everywhere, it's the universal way of hailing a cab. Well, that's how you get a ride. Right. So I designed a figure that's hailing a cab. And I went and I presented. And in the middle of my presentation, I literally stood up and I assumed the pose of the, the sculptures of the sculptures for the jury. And I said, "This is what you do when you want to hail a cab." And a guy said, "Not in New Orleans. That's what you do when you want somebody to throw you beads at Mardi Gras." <laughs> and I just went, "I have hit the jackpot," because. Not everybody needs a ride out of New Orleans in case of mandatory evacuation. Most people have their own transportation, have a car, have ways out of town, but everybody in New Orleans goes to Mardi Gras. Right. Everybody. There's, I mean, period. You, everybody. So this figure is asking for a ride and, even more importantly, asking for beads at Mardi Gras. And they have a tradition is starting to happen where the various neighborhoods where these figures are located, they get dressed up, they get decorated. Oh wow! And for Mardi Gras. For Mardi Gras, and they put so there's garlands. Real ownership of them. Yeah, the locals have 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 adopted each figure. That is so cool. And it, it's just and then I got the highest honor awarded to anyone in New Orleans. On the first Mardi Gras after these were installed, uh, one of the crews, people get together and put together floats for Mardi Gras, copied one of my statues in paper mache, very nice job, by the way, and mounted it at the front of their float holding a cocktail. Oh, yeah. And so there was my figure at the front of a float paraded down, the, down Canal Street in New Orleans for Mardi Gras. And uh, somebody told me, you know, if you get lampooned in a float, that's it. Right. You've died and gone to heaven. So that's really something. And every year at hurricane season, they have drills and they set up tents at these sculptures and they publicize it and they have hundreds and hundreds of kids volunteering. And this is now part of the, right. the landscape. And I think that that moves me so much. Going to get an artist to make something yes. that people will connect with emotionally. And wouldn't and a, very important to me is I didn't want to frighten someone. Right. You know, hurricanes are scary. What they do to New Orleans is terrifying. Yeah. But I wanted people to to see these sculptures and go, oh, that's where I get a ride. But like, oh my God, that means we're all going to die. I mean, no, <laughs> no, no. no right. they're they're not scary. They're friendly. They're figurative you understand what they are immediately this is a path to help yes these are part of your world and i'm honored again also mayor landrew the mayor at the time named them as official symbols 
of the city of New Orleans well, at the nice. dedication. And I also made a pin, exactly a replica of the sculpture in a pin size, you know, that you wear on, a, on your shirt. And I made 300 of them and we distributed them to all the bus drivers of New Orleans. Uh, we worked with the transit union and it was officially deemed part of their uniform. Oh, cool. So, you know, this never again will I have a, a project like that. Yeah. It's very unique. It's, it's, it's part of the city. It's everywhere you go. People send me pictures. Yeah. You know. Also, you know, they're, they're functional. They're doing a job. But, you know, so there's 17 because there's 17 evacuation locations. But I also have this sense, you know, the 17 sculptures really kind of connecting the community in an, another way, too because it's the same sculpture in 17 different places, and, and it's only in New Orleans, right? Only in New Orleans. That's really nice. And, uh, and then they raised more money, and they're now lit at night. Wow. And that was a very expensive thing, to bring electricity and lighting to each one of these, because they're not in easy spots to bring wiring to. But they, they got local businesses to donate. Yeah. And they're part of the landscape. Hurricane force winds will not damage them or move them. They will be there forever. I hope to God they're never used, but maybe they might be someday. They will save lives. Yeah. And there's not a lot of public art that saves lives. It's <laughs> <laughs> you know? a pretty good legacy. Yeah, you know. So I I feel good about that. I'm I'm thrilled about that. Well, thank you. I think that's a great place. Public art saving lives. I. I don't think you can do better than that for for an ending of a conversation. Uh, I I like that. So, yes, that is a good ending. Thank you so very much. For oh, it's been a today. pleasure. I've been speaking with Doug Cornfeld, Douglas Cornfeld, public artist. Thank you, Doug. Thank you. This is Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, also known as AI, the Creative Pinellas Podcast. Sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners, visit St. Petersburg Clearwater and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Sheila Cowley. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.